Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jake Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we're going to talk about Sued P. Is that how you say it, Jay? Sued P? S-U-D-E-P? SUDEP. SUDEP. Sudden, sudden death with epilepsy. SUDEP. SUDEP. Okay, got it. Uh, and the death of pro-wide receiver Demarius Thomas. Also, the Surgeon General put out a, a warning report on the mental health of children. But before we start, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. Outrageous Baking, Tour Talk, EEG and Me, Mara, Welcome aboard, Sadia M. and Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. Tortok wants more people to discover text-to-speech because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. And then we also don't want to forget Joshua M., owner of Alternative Behavioral Therapy. I think they're out in Washington, aren't they, uh, Jay? You know, I, I deal with people online. I very seldom know exactly where they're from. So. Oh, it's, Josh is up in Vancouver, Washington. I just looked. And uh, neurofeedbackcare.com. Josh, thanks for being a supporter. Okay, let's get to the meat of the, meat of the show here. Did you guys take a look at that uh, report that uh, Surgeon General put out? Yeah. So, Any thoughts? Uh, well, other than it's just uh, kind of frightening to see society kind of fall apart to have have you know adolescents and kids have such difficulty, and if you if you isolate, and you know COVID has people isolated, um, you don't have the normal societal uh, support and interaction, and you know being there all by yourself is uh, kind of a, a difficult place and. You know, Zoom meetings don't really replace the social interaction that you normally would get at, at school, the playground, you know, out and about with your friends. And uh, without that social interaction, you know, people can kind of spin off in a bad way. And without that support, it's difficult to kind of find your way. And, and it's tough enough. I mean, it, it was tough when I was a kid, but nowadays it's it's crazy tough. So um, they, yeah. they had a they had a visual on there, and I was just wondering what your your take was. The factors that shape the mental health. They had the core, the in, individual, family, community, environment, society. At the core of it all, they, they're saying age, genetics, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, disability, beliefs. Acknowledge attitudes, coping skills. Does that sound about right? Or don't, don't want to know. go against there, all, all go critical, ahead, all critical pieces. What do you have, Skip? Well, uh, unfortunately, a lot, right? Meaning this is prevalent, and and certainly not to knock the Surgeon General, um, you know, acknowledging this, but this is not new within. You know, APA is probably my most consistent communication with other providers. And so it's been being talked about since this thing started. 
And on on the show, Laura and I have talked about it anecdotally within our practices early on. I think even one of our early shows, Pete, was was COVID effects on kids and anxiety and and depressions and things. And what's probably become clearer and maybe even more quantifiable, which always allows for dissemination of information, right? You can talk about things when you're like, hey, this isn't just me talking. It's a body of work that's showing this is the longer term effects of this loss of socialness, just to call it something, is, is a pretty damn big deal. And, and that's not a clinical term, but it's, it, it all is kind of pointing back to the, the benefit, I'll say, but the necessity for interaction, connection for lots of things. We could easily turn this, Jay, right, to you know, neural development and those kinds of things. But if we just want to keep it on a people level, um, man, if you're holed up in your wherever your dwelling is without any kind of stimulation other than, you know, the folks you come in contact with a lot, it leads to mental health issues. And, and I think that's what the data is kind of telling us. Again, anecdotally, it's it's morphed from, hey, I'm getting all these kids coming in, um, you know, a year and a half ago that are experiencing these things kind of acutely. And now I'm seeing a practice where parents are like, yeah, about a year and a half ago, these things started changing. And it's certainly not that the parents forgot we're in a pandemic, but that's what I'm seeing now. Now I'm seeing this kind of COVID um, diagnosis, if you will, right? That, that, hey, since this thing happened, my kid is exhibiting these behaviors, which more often than not, again, um, just kind of tied to my practice are exacerbation of things that were already there. Right. So, so things are getting worse for these kids, but nonetheless, I think it all points back to this idea that sequestering us. I don't think we're built for it. Yeah. And who, who needs to have an existential crisis as a child, right. you know, that, right. uh, yeah, that you, you should wait till your middle age and buy a sports car, you know, it's, <laughs> um, it's just, it's tragic to see uh, uh, kids having to deal with their mortality at an age that they shouldn't really be focused on that. You know? and, and, and neurodevelopmentally, Jay and Pete, uh, like those brains aren't made to do that necessarily. You know, there's, yeah. there's reasons why, it, and I'm a former teenager, so I can say this, why teenagers are knuckleheads is because the executive functioning did not fully develop. There's other reasons too. And then I can cite myself, you know, but the brains aren't necessarily made to uh, contemplate and, and grapple with these yeah. issues. And, and so that we, we have to add that too, right? That's, that's real. Yeah. And when the stressors are constant, it's hard to get post on the traumatic stress, you know, the, uh, it, it's it's extraordinarily common now to see uh, recordings of kids and adults who can't stay awake for ten minutes. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the 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 whatever stressors have been going on have ruined their sleep quality. And uh, uh, historically, you'd see people stay wide awake for five minutes and have a little light stage one in the last five minutes of a ten minute eyes closed recording. And Rusty Turner, the, the epileptologist, child neurologist, and I were chatting, and we, we haven't really seen that normal pattern for a long time. It, it, the you know, People are falling asleep within the first five minutes, which 
qualifies here for a polysomnography sleep study, actually. You know, you're, you're falling asleep so fast that the sleep at night is, is just not intact. And that, uh, you know, uh, the lack of sleep, your brain doesn't recover, your body doesn't recover. Um, you, you don't uh, transfer short-term memory into long-term potentiated memory. You know, sleep is critical for health and, and apparently it's, it's suffering based on what we've seen in the objective testing of you know, just recording the routine EEG, eyes closed. You know, if you can't stay awake, wide awake for five minutes, there's something seriously wrong. And, um, and again, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of that. Luckily, there's, there's a whole bunch of technologies out there now for monitoring sleep. And uh, we're, we're making quite a few recommendations for uh, people to get sleep studies, but also recommendation for people to get uh, devices to monitor their sleep. You know, I, uh, you know uh, Fitbit and Apple Watch and uh, Ring and Aura Ring, uh, uh, there, and there's a lot of others as well. And in addition to at-home sleep study, you know, kits that can be sent out. So th- there's no reason not to be you know, on top of it technologically now, you know, you, you can have stuff that monitors your sleep quality and kind of flags you, you know, well, you know, you're, you're not going to bed on time. Um, you're not winding down uh, an hour and a half or so before, you know, time for bed and, you know, the, poor sleep hygiene, you know, sleep hygiene isn't taking a shower before you go to bed. You know, it's, it's the, the quality of your life that, that uh, kind of allows you to sleep well. And, uh, you know, poor sleep hygiene is, is something that's really uh, detrimental to uh, long-term mental health. The, uh, the, the ability to handle stress requires you to be resilient and your resilience isn't there if you don't sleep well. You know, the, the first part of the night, you get most of your slow wave sleep and the last part of the night, you get most of your REM. Now you 90 minute cycles, but the amount of slow wave sleep is early in the night. It, it produces growth hormone, you know, assuming you have a pituitary, I don't, you know, but, uh, so I inject the stuff, but um, you know, you, you have to have it in order to recover from the wear and tear of a workout or the wear and tear on your mind and brain of, of actual wear and tear of you know, mental function. So if you don't have the growth hormone, you don't grow new dendritic connections and you don't recover at a cellular level from the wear and tear of the day. And then after you've grown those connections early in the evening, REM sleep, you play back memory uh, that's short-term recall and you long-term potentiate it by burning it into those new dendritic connections. So if you don't have good sleep, memory doesn't work very well. And people that have poor sleep patterns don't do well learning. And, you know, neurofeedback is a learning process. uh, And people who don't have proper sleep take twice as long to learn the task of control of the brain. And that's, you know, (laughs) at at a, you know, a, a certain fee per session, you're paying twice as much as you should if you actually got some good sleep. So it's, you know, it's important and it's critically important. It's not just, oh, you know, casually, you know, it'll help some, you know, 10% variability or something. This, this is a major, major impact. And without proper sleep, uh, elite athletes can't perform. 
because you don't recover from the workouts properly. Your, your wear and tear will build up and you're going to end up with a muscle tear, a muscle strain, you know, and uh, that you, you can't operate at an elite level unless you're firing on all cylinders and you can't be missing out on sleep. Uh, the, the Australians did a very nice study. Uh, elite athletes are kind of finely tuned instruments and they're a little tightly wrapped, you know, so uh, they, they have sleep problems as a commonality. And we, we recommended uh, that they try SMR, uh, sensory motor rhythm uh, training centrally uh, to try to offset the uh, insomnia issue. They tend to have beta spindling at CZ and the beta spindles are the wakefulness drive. If you have a strong wakefulness drive, you have trouble sleeping. So you need to have a better sleep spindle, which is the same thing as SMR. And uh, training them uh, 20 plus sessions of SMR training, they found subjectively and their subjective reports as well, objectively wearing Actigraph watch technology to measure your sleep objectively. They actually saw that sleep was better. And uh, they've instituted it as a standard part of their, uh, uh, their their package, the Australian Institute for Sports. They're kind of like their Olympic committee uh, basically has instituted SMR training for any of the people they have that have a complaint of insomnia or difficulty sleeping. And if you're an Australian athlete, you can guarantee you're going to be upside down in your circadian rhythm somewhere competing. You know, you've got to travel somewhere outside of Australia for world-class athletic competition. So uh, they've they've, uh, made that adjustment uh, in order to optimize their athletes. And it's not just for athletes. You've got to perform properly no matter who you are. And and sleep is a critical piece of that. Ditto. Thanks, Jay. Right. Uh, The things that contribute to the difficulty with sleep I think are, are multifaceted too. And so now we're back to some of these issues that might be, again, exacerbated by the last couple of years we've been living in. And, and again, not to point out things to throw it under the bus, but you know, constant reports of the, the effects of this the pandemic. And then you have the variants coming on. And we've had folks on the show before that have talked to us about the, the impact of uh, overexposure to things that that lead to a, a, a you know a, a heightened fight or flight response system, and if you're constantly in that state, again, not a clinical term, but it jacks you up, and you're not going to be able to get to a place where you can get the rest that that Jay's talking about. That's so important for all of us, uh, but also that we might be seeing some things that because they're happening so consistently are leading to real changes, right? So, you know, you're going along and say, it's not, you know, the last two years we've all experienced and something happened. um, And it seems up where we are, where in the spring semester, you know, something happens and you drop out of school and you don't finish your semester and you pick it up. That's, that's more of, of an acute situation that you would ultimately be able to adjust to and here we are, you know, continuing on in this kind of, you know, new normal air quotes, right? That doesn't seem to have a bottom to it sometimes. And so there's this adaption that is happening that we're seeing. And, and I've got a plug here in a second um, for being able to respond to one's environment, which is what the brain does, right? So it, it's always trying to, to adjust and react and, and be ready for what the environment brings it. 
And so if it's adjusting and reacting and trying to be ready for this new thing that's continuously stressful, you're probably going to have neurological change, right? And so that's that's part of the concern too is, hey, where, where are we headed with this and, and what is this giving us um, to deal with in the future? And so, you know, good thing Surgeon General comes on board and, and bringing it to everybody's attention. He's got a, a pretty good pulpit there, right? For people to listen. Um, and, and I'm referring to um, our, our health system, right? Mental health, again, has been on board for a while um, because we're dealing with this stuff firsthand, but it, the more the word gets out that, hey, like this isn't just, sorry, you missed your graduation. This is turning into some things that, that we could be dealing with for quite a while as brains adapt to this, again, new normal. Uh, with that said, if I can do a, a plug um, that doesn't benefit me, so there's that, but the NAN, so Neuropsych, National Neuropsych um, Association. They are doing an online webinar kind of deal. Um, and it's round two. I've actually seen round one, uh, maybe a month or so ago. And it's the neuropsychological issues and outcome in COVID-19 adult and pediatric patients. So they have two presenters, one focusing on adults and the other pediatric. So obviously the pediatric um, section is, you know, pertinent to what we're discussing, but it's folks that are directly and indirectly impacted by COVID and, uh, geez, who, who is that not right? Who isn't directly or indirectly impacted? So I think it's pretty comprehensive. They're just using that language because obviously it's people included in the study, but if anybody's interested, there's a NAN distance, uh, CE organization. And so that's the, um, National Neuropsych Association, and they have some distance learning, National Academy of Neuropsych, um, and you can find them online. And it, it's open to non-members as well, if you want. So there's that, but it's some pretty hard data on, on what this particular um, practitioner was finding um, within a couple hundred kids. So not just 10, you know, like I'm referring to. So there's, there's that if folks want to find out some more hard information. So the enemy of neurofeedback is laziness. If, if people don't want to do the training and they just want to take something, the, the sleep hygiene market that's out there, you, you have the melatonin products that are out there, the Z's, Ambien. What's going on in the brain when people are taking that? Is there a long-term effect? What, what's going on in the noggin? You know, when I do lectures, I quite often pop up a slide that I stumbled on when I was in uh, Venice. It, you know, I was waiting for uh, uh, Stephen Porges and his wife to come down to go out to dinner together. And I was sitting in the lobby and, and there's a Sports Illustrated written in Italian. You know, so I pick it up, I'm flipping through and I see this spec scan of sleep. And one of them is Ambien and the other one is normal sleep. And the ambient is this blue black head of no metabolic function. And the other one is full of activity. Your brain is busy, even though you're unconscious when you're in sleep. You know, the, the delta pattern in slow wave sleep is really increased perfusion. It's a very busy pattern. You're just not conscious. But you, you have your choice. You can have what I call Michael Jackson sleep. Or you can have real sleep, which has your brain busy doing things. And if you take Ambien, Lunesta, Zonata, I mean, there's, there, there's a whole pile of sleeping medications that are benzo or benzo-like, and all of them 
end up damaging the architecture of sleep. You, you actually get worse quality sleep. And they're REM suppressors. Now, what happens when you suppress REM long enough? It's going to pop up in your daytime you know, mental function. And REM stuff is not necessarily all for public viewing. I mean, it's you can have some pretty crazy stuff happening in your dreams. So when it pops up during the daytime, you're going to look like the fool. So, uh, you know, uh, sleeping meds uh, damaging your sleep, you know, you're, you're going to do uh, something stupid because REM pops in during the daytime eventually. And there are people taking over-the-counter sleeping medications that are based basically on Benadryl uh, and diphenhydramine. And if you take that, it, it also strips away acetylcholine. Uh, there are a lot of people who propose that uh, long-term use of that will end up causing uh, an enhancement of dementia. One of the things you see in Alzheimer's disease is a stripping away of acetylcholine. So, you know, uh, you know taking Z-Quil or any of the over-the-counter, you know, uh, um, yeah, there's a whole list of brand names. I don't need to advertise a, a, a stupid product, you know. Um, but it, it, it's one thing to take it once every three, four months for some super weird circumstance. You traveled, you're out of your time zone or something. That's another thing. There are people taking it on a nightly basis. And I think that's really, really, really uh, ill-advised. It, you know, <laughs> We're all the fool at some point, and if you take uh, uh, Benadryl on an ongoing basis for sleep, you are the fool. So, uh, I have a I'm question. Here. Yeah, thanks. I have a question, Jay. Uh, I, and, and I've heard and read both sides of the argument from melatonin. I've you know talked to folks and read about studies where there's some evidence that massive doses can be helpful, and then there's you know folks just to swing the pendulum on the other end that are like, hey. If you're adding melatonin to your system, which your system is supposed to naturally produce, then it's going to, just like you were mentioning, um, but with something else there, that it's going to affect the production of melatonin within the system. Like the system will say, hey, why do I need to produce it if it's already here? And so you're, again, pendulum swinging that way. Do you know of things um, just definitively one way or the other on melatonin? I've talked to lots of folks that do it with their kids. I guess I'm middle of the road. Well, low dose to moderate dose of it has a different effect than a high dose. A high dose actually has a little bit of a hypnotic effect, like the sleeping meds that get you a little rummy. Uh, uh, but at low to moderate dose, it has a more of a physiologic uh, process. Um, it, it, it basically assists uh, your, your uh, suprachiasmal nucleus for um, uh, initiating sleep. Uh, it's, it doesn't damage your sleep architecture like some of the sleeping meds do. But again, at a higher dose, it behaves more like the uh, hypnotics that are a problem for sleep. I have yet to see well done uh, studies uh, looking at its negative effects. Uh, I've seen lots of kind of opinion pieces, but, you know, uh, uh, opinions are you know, a dime a dozen. Um, you, you've got to actually have some data to back it up. And I haven't yet seen a, a, a well-done study on that. Uh, uh, people who have circadian rhythm delay 
which is a form of sleep disorder. It's one of the treatable forms of sleep disorder uh, where you, 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 you can't fall asleep easily. So you stay up late and then you can't wake up in the morning. So your circadian rhythm has shifted in time uh, uh, to, to a later uh, onset and a much later awakening. Uh, people with that uh, end up having a treatment for it using melatonin in the evening and then very bright light in the morning to help reset the circadian rhythm. And, you know, for delayed circadian rhythm people, melatonin is part of the treatment. Um, and and it, it's a necessary part of the treatment. And the alternative is to take pharma that, that's problematic. So uh, uh, I, I don't shy away from suggesting melatonin as an option, but I do suggest that they look carefully at dosing. Uh, again, uh, you know, you, you can take a handful of them or you can take one or two. and you know, gobbling down a handful is, is basically uh, taking a dose that's excessive. What do you consider low dose? Three milligrams and under, five milligrams and under? Three to five is Three absolutely five. fine. Okay. Uh, when you start to exceed 10, you start to get the rummy side effect. And, and you know, some people, that's kind of what they're looking for. You know, it's a, uh, entertaining in some fashion or something. And you know, if you're taking a sleeping med, it's for sleep. Don't take it and stay up, you know, and ride it like it's a roller coaster of some sort, you know. And there, there are a lot of people who take a sleeping pill and, and kind of enjoy the ride as opposed to allowing it to assist with their sleep. But, Jay, um, if you got a kid that has sleeping problems, just real quick for the new techs out there, what are you, you going to train on them for, for those that wish to have training? Well, uh, first of all, you look. Uh, uh, kids can have uh, patterns that you don't expect, um, in, including people that have what's called ESES, electrographic status epilepticus of sleep, where when they fall asleep, they actually have epileptiform content in their, in their sleep and it disturbs their sleep. So they don't get quality sleep. Some have breakthrough seizures and some just, you know, have totally screwed up sleep. And we've actually effectively worked with an ESES case um, uh, who uh, started having seizures and brain problems at a year and a half old or so. And uh, we, we started working at age eight and uh, at this point, seizure-free, medication-free. And, and the, uh, you know, the, the doctor who was working with them was suggesting that they were going to have to do some brain surgery which unfortunately is extremely common as an approach. Um, you know, uh, if, if the doctor is thinking of doing brain surgery on you and you have the ability to spend a few months worth of um, neurofeedback time, uh, you may actually avoid the knife. Uh, we have a, a whole series of patients who were intractable epileptics who were uh, discussed as surgical candidates uh, uh, yeah, yesterday I looked at an EEG of a, of a young kid, uh, uh, and, uh, the, the hospital system isn't going to do another EEG until he's 12. And then they're going to do a long study because they intend to basically do surgery. And you have to do an ex extended study, uh, looking to see, you know, where the discharges are. If they're bilateral, you can't really do surgery with a positive effect. And, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, cutting out a big piece of the temporal lobe uh, isn't necessarily something I would line up for if I had an alternative. And if the alternative is a 
learning task as opposed to a surgical intervention, I think it's time to take the learning task as an option and give that a shot before you, 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 you let them cut a piece of your temporal lobe out. You know, they used to cut off the anterior third or half of the temporal lobe, uh, uh, kind of a, 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 a gigantic surgery. Uh, nowadays, they're a lot more careful. They try to find the, the little nuclear body within it or a little tiny spot within it that they can excise. And it's, it's more like a lumpectomy instead of a mastectomy sort of an approach, uh, but obviously it's just temporal lobe. Um, so uh, the thing is, the effectiveness of the little lumpectomy approach ends up being lower. Uh, they, they have about a 30% long-term success, not a very high success rate. Uh, you, you have, uh, if you pay attention to the people who are doing the surgery, and their statistics, um, they're going to give you a skewed result. They basically rule out partial seizures. So if you set aside partial seizures, we have a really good success rate. Well, I don't set aside partial seizures. I mean, you're, having, you're still having seizures. Uh, that's not success success. Now, if you're not falling down and convulsing, it's a benefit, but it's not really true success. And using actual elimination of the seizures entirely, uh, neurofeedback has about a 70% success rate and uh, surgery has about a 50% success rate. Now they'll claim about a 70%, but again, they're ruling out partial seizures as something to count. And, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. If they're still having a seizure, your surgery wasn't really fully successful. Yeah. So, uh, I, it's unfortunate that there isn't a better adoption of neurofeedback in epilepsy. The epileptologists are generally dismissive of neurofeedback, and it's unfortunate. Uh, the, the literature is supportive. Um, the, the literature wasn't being done by uh, somebody trying to sell you something. It's uh, the academics in Europe, um, uh, clinical uh, case series here in the United States, uh, meta-analyses that have been done uh, and, and repeated. So uh, uh, there, there's, there's a solid efficacy for neurofeedback and epilepsy. It's just unfortunately underutilized. I was talking about seizures. My goodness, the NFL, man, another, another lost 33-year-old Demarius Thomas. He's on my fantasy football team back in the day. Yeah, a lot of people. ten years with the Broncos. Sued P. I never heard of Sued P. Before, what what happened? Sudep, uh, sudden Sudep. death from epilepsy. Sudep. Um, Sudep. You know, he had a car accident, and after his car accident, uh, is probably some kind of a head injury with a brain injury, and uh, you know, once you start having seizures, every time you have a seizure, it makes the next one easier to have. It burns in the circuit. If you fire together, you wire together. It's a classic statement in neuroscience. But, you know, for neurofeedback, the other phrase, if you don't use it, you lose it, ends up being important as well. If we can quiet down the network that's making the seizures, that network will disassemble. You know, the spokes and hubs, uh, you know, the models kind of look like tinker toys, a little hub and a little spokes between hubs and um, but the network is not firing together to, to permanently wire it. You start to lose a hub here and a spoke there. 
and pretty soon the network won't support a seizure. So we're, we're uh, quite effective in unwrapping these networks using neurofeedback. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's entirely possible to stop having seizures if you're an intractable epileptic. We have a paper in submission right now of, uh, of, the, of Isabella, a case in Barcelona, uh, and uh, uh, she's now a tennis star here in the United States, uh, seizure-free, medication-free. When we started with her, she was having 250 seizures a day, some of which had extended periods of lack of respiration. You know, and you know, when you turn blue, it, it's not really good for you. You know, um, uh, uh, having an uncontrolled seizure can kill you, sudden death from epilepsy. And it can happen in your sleep. And for uh, him, it happened in his shower. You know, they, they found him uh, after he was unresponsive to phone calls and stuff, uh, knowing that he had a history of seizure. His, his limo driver um, uh, was, was basically uh, somebody who had a key to his place. In, in case somebody had to access it. And they, they you know, popped in and found him you know, dead in the shower. So, um, you know, convulsions uh, are, are potentially fatal. Uh, if you have an extended one and stop breathing, uh, that can be it. So uh, um, uh, in order to avoid SUDEP, uh, the, the epileptologists are doing brain surgery to try and cut out the hub that they think is causing the seizure. Historically, uh, epileptologists looked for the focus. That was the big hunt. Where's the focus? Where's the focus? Now they know it's a network property. You can't cut out a network. You know, you, you can cut out a piece of the network, but you can't cut out the entire network because, you know, throughout the brain. So, um, you, you know, the uh, you, you basically have to learn how to train that network to behave properly long enough so that it starts to disassemble itself. And at, at that point, you can have progressively improved symptoms. In the case of Isabella, if, if you knew what you were looking at, you could kind of see what part of the brain was no longer involved in the, in the discharge. And the last piece to go was the spot that was triggering it she would have severe abdominal pain as an aura that she was about to have a, a full-blown seizure. And the abdominal pain was essentially a discharge in the insula. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that was the trigger point for her. That was the focus that was, was basically needed to be targeted. Uh, interestingly, the surgeons in Barcelona were going to cut up her right temporal lobe where the epileptiform discharge was obvious. The non-obvious left side was where it was being all triggered. So they would have had a totally ineffective surgery. And I have a whole series of temporal post-surgical EEGs with people still having seizures. Um, what happens is that it's, it's got a network that's got spots in areas that they didn't cut out. So they, they didn't effectively stop the, the, the seizure discharges. And, uh, you know, I, it, it's got to be really frustrating when you cut out a temporal lobe chunk and you still are having seizures. I mean, it, it, the right temporal lobe, they, they, they'll, they'll tell you, well, most people don't miss it. <laughs> uh, give me a break, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep mine. Thank um, you. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can have a stroke in the right temporal area or the right hemisphere and, and kind of ignore it. You know, hemispheric neglect uh, is something that happens with, with right temporal and right hemispheric uh, problems. But uh, it's there for a reason. And, and we, we obviously see stuff on the left side because language is goofed up. But on the right side, your emotional comprehension and emotional expression are off. So, yeah, it's less obvious. But kind of a theoretical question. I know we're talking about Demarius Thomas in particular, and so I'm not asking anybody for 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 this for him. But it's it's hard not to wonder. We are talking about an ex NFL player, and that means he's probably got his head hit a couple times. And so the general question, and I don't think there's a specific answer. I'm just trying to you know get a conversation going because I'm I'm wondering with repeated head trauma let's just call it that because if he's been playing football like anybody since you know high school or junior high it's happened so what could that state right repeated head trauma whatever the hell that means for us do to allow someone maybe to be more prone to epileptic seizures or convulsions and and I, I don't know anything about this car accident what happened to him whether he hit his head or not I don't know any of that I just know you know what the news said and that he collapsed in the shower or that's where he was found so again back to this kind of just general wondering what can that do I know location matters right it's like real estate for sure so what in, in general how 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 would you put together or think of you know, head trauma, just shaking up the whole, the whole globe, you know, um, due to allow for seizures. How about that? Well, uh, the same amount of head trauma from one person to the next may have dramatic difference uh, in effect. Sure. Uh, You can't always judge from the spot that you see the scar or the bruise or whatever you see on the surface that the area underneath it is the spot that's damaged. Sometimes it's at a distant location. Yep. Um, the, you know, contra the other side, uh, the, yep. the tra- trauma on the other side. And, um, uh, and, uh, one person with the same exact trauma with the same exact spot hit exactly the same way. Uh, one person may have a family tendency towards epilepsy and a uh, family history of epilepsy and a head injury in them may trigger it where the same head injury in somebody who doesn't have something that's a propensity for it may not. So um, I, I wanted to show you a uh, example uh, here of this is the case Isabella. And this is uh, uh, an image uh, that, that's one of the graphics in the uh, case study that we're, we're, we've submitted. Um, the, the beginning of this doesn't have the seizure discharge. And the seizure discharge in this isn't a classic spike in wave kind of a thing. It's rhythmic activity coming out of the temporal lobe. Um, this is F8, the lateral frontal area. Uh, this is the mid-temporal uh, right side electrode at T4, or now it's called T8 as well, modified nomenclature. Um, and the obvious run of this on the right side is why those surgeons were ready to cut that temporal lobe out. But if you go back before the discharge, there's actually activity in the left temporal area, T5, that you see here. And 
look at the spike discharge on T5 in the midst of this run. Actually, her primary problem, the trigger point for her seizures is on the left side. The left side is not as good and it doesn't put out the voltage that the right side does. The right side is an obvious discharge. The left side is, is the trigger point. This is the base period before the discharge happened. And the left temporal area has the delta or rhythmic slow focus and the slow alpha focus. Um, there's beta spindles in the EEG, easily kindled cortex. And the easily kindled cortex is a predisposition towards uh, the, the likelihood of having a problem if you do have a, a, a lesion of some sort. So um, this is the, is the core problem. And this is where her uh, insula on the left side ended up being the, the source of the abdominal pain that was her trigger. Now, when the discharge happens, you get a, this gigantic discharge on the right side that's you know, clipped. It's, it's so large that it's off scale here. The left side is, you know, it's got an abnormal feature going on, but the right side is where all that voltage is. And again, that's where the doctor is, is, was prepared to remove the anterior part of the temporal lobe. Now, this is uh, the patient after uh, treatment and this is sleep deprived uh, with international travel. Uh, sleep deprivation enhances the likelihood of seeing a seizure discharge. Uh, th this is her EEG after treatment. Uh, there's a little residual feature over here, uh, but the, the EEG is, is basically normalized compared to what it was. And the, the discharges are basically gone. Um, and even with the uh, sleep deprivation, it didn't bring out a discharge. You know, people having a, a regular EEG, just a you know, 20 to 30 minutes is the minimum standard. And if you do a 20 to 30 minute EEG, you have a little over half a chance of seeing a discharge. And yeah, uh, the, uh, if you sleep deprive someone, uh, you have a much higher likelihood, 50 to 70% increase in diagnostic yield of that simple standard EEG, not a long-term EEG where you have a higher likelihood of seeing something, but just the screening 20 to 30 minute study. So um, everybody thinks that photic stimulation, the flashy light is the thing that's going to bring out seizures in a clinical study. It's a 4% additional yield above and beyond the resting state EEG. And sleep deprivation is a 50 to 70% increase. Now, there are therapists out there doing neurofeedback that basically say, well, you know, I'm a psychologist. I can't treat seizures. Well, you know, don't claim to treat seizures. You can work with somebody who has epilepsy to train them SMR, which helps with their sleep. And sleep deprivation ruins, you know, seizure patterns. So you, you, you can claim to be helping them with their sleep using SMR. And, oh, by the way, their, their seizures will be improved as well. So you don't, you know, you have to be honest about what you're intending to do, uh, but let the physician treat the seizure. Uh, you, you optimize patients' brain function and assist with their uh, sleep maintenance and and uh, brain health. And uh, at, at that point, you'll you'll see that their uh, seizure patterns are improved. Yeah, so, you make a great point, um, and, and I want to echo it. So I apologize for interrupting you there, uh, and that's. 
folks aversion to maybe doing things called something because of licensure and, and CYA type, uh, you know, reactions, which is good. Like I get it for sure. But if you are able to just phrase it or, or conceptualize it a little differently, like, Hey, I'm not trying to treat seizures. That's what uh, neurologists are for. I'm here um, because I know a little bit about neurofeedback and I'm, and I'm working on sleep. The fact yeah. I know that sleep can exacerbate, you know, seizures uh, or discharge, then good. That's why we're doing it. But also we're here to do sleep. I think, I think that is within folks scope of expertise, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, if you actually look at it, we're, we're talking about people that are having convulsions as being the ones who have epileptic form discharges, but they're extremely common in non-epileptic patients that aren't having seizures and probably never will. Uh, there's a, there's a, a current 2020 uh, study uh, that, that I'll uh, share here. Uh, this is a meta-analysis. Um, uh, Springer, uh, Dr. Swatsina is a psychologist. Martine Arns is a psychologist. We've had uh, Dr. on the show. Tarnos, uh, 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 a psychiatrist. Uh, Rusty Turner is uh, an epileptologist, child neurologist. Uh, These were grad students at one point. I think they probably graduated by now. And Nash Boutros is is an international EG expert who's well-known internationally. This is a meta-analysis. And they they looked at clinical circumstances like ADD, ADHD. And the meta-analysis, they basically are seeing about 25% of the cases end up having epileptiform content. And in anxiety, twice the three to five percent of the normal background activity, normal people, three to five percent might have a discharge that's unexpected. This is twice that or three times that. Uh, autism, 60 percent approximately. Mood disorders, not such a high percentage generally. There's some studies that are uh, m- much higher, but uh, the three to five percent is what most people find in depressives. But psychotic patients, about a third of them have epileptiform content. And if you give them an antipsychotic medication, they will get worse. Uh, here's a table. Uh, anxiety disorders, 39%. Autism, 34%. Um, uh, traumatic brain injury, 29%. You get down here, seizures, 55%. Just a little over half of the, the, the seizure cases are identifiable in a routine EEG. But migraine, uh, psychosis, they're, they're in the same ballpark, uh, basically, as people that have known seizures. So um, what I would suggest is you have to expect the unexpected. If you're doing clinical work and you're not looking at the EEG, you may be working with a patient who needs to have training to get rid of the discharge. And, you know, a Tourette case yeah, not everybody that has Tourette's ends up having epileptiform content, but it's common. So uh, I would suggest that we start to expect the unexpected and, and uh, uh, look, look solidly at doing a routine EEG on your clients, especially if you're treating them with something and they, you don't get the usual result that you expect. You know, it's an ADD kid and you give them a medication and they have an unexpected result. And at that point, if, if you're not doing an EEG to find out what's actually going on in their brain, you're really operating beneath what should be the standard of practice. You know, look before you leap. 
uh, my grandmother was right. Don't dive in unless you know what's under the surface. Jay, what what's going on in London? I hear there's a all a, a rage of a certain documentary that's being played out there. You got any uh, <laughs> news on that? Well, uh, you know the. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Mary Tracy approached me and asked me if uh, she could shoot a documentary about my weird life. And, you know, I thought she'd come in with a little handheld video and ask me a handful of questions and that would be it. But they came in with a full crew, uh, you know, the little clappers and take three and all that kind of stuff. And after three, six hours of video shoots, uh, they, they, they ended up with two hours worth of documentary. Now, uh, it's called Signal in the Noise uh, because, you know, the EEG is basically a lot of noise. According to the traditional interpretation, it's all a epiphenomenon. It doesn't mean anything. Well, you know, I, I, I never did believe that. I, I, I kind of figured if it's your brain's activity, it's actually something to look at, an important piece of it. So um, the documentary came out. We showed it a few times here in the U.S., um, East Coast, West Coast. Uh, a handful of uh, online presentations and uh, the, the, uh, the directors of the film, Ethan and Mary uh, decided they were going to submit it for film festivals. So it's been accepted in the London film festival as a, in the documentary category. Um, <laughs> I don't know that all of London is a flutter over this. <laughs> I think <laughs> You're, I just said I heard. I heard. Oh, you 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 pumped it up a little bit more than it probably needs, but um, uh, but it's also submitted to the Fargo Film Festival where I grew up. Um, it's been accepted in a couple of others. One in Delaware. I don't know specifically which one. Uh, the, uh, I think there's three or four that has been accepted in. I think they submitted it to twelve different uh, uh, film festivals, and uh, you know it's all fairly recent. They haven't heard back from most of them. So uh, you, you're going to be walking around with those gold statues, you know? Uh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, I already have these. <laughs> what? And, yeah, yeah. The, the gunkle. Why the gunkle, are we? Not, why are we not selling those? The, oh these are gosh. these are called the gunkle bobble, and you re- recognize there's a certain resemblance here. You know, actually, I think it's better looking than I am. <laughs> Yeah, it's so, the beard. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, they even got the eye patch. Uh, they've got the the logo, company logo uh, on the shirt and everything. Uh, actually, this one is, uh, this was a, a proof. And that this is the one that doesn't have the logo on the shirt. It's just one I've got here. But, um, yeah, the, uh, if I spray painted that gold, it would be the only gold one you'd ever see, you know. Uh, well, we'll put the links in the uh, show notes, uh, Jay. I'm sure we'll get you a few more listens, you know, because I don't know how, how many more we're going to get out of you before you get famous. You, are you going to go to Hollywood now? Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't go anywhere. Uh, you, you see me in this chair and I'm pretty much in this chair. I, I don't get out. Um, I'm not well enough to go out. So uh when you've got a cerebral spinal fluid leak, uh, if you catch a common cold, it can go straight into your brain. And you know, don't I, want that. I'm doing my best to try and keep my brain as intact as it can be. It's already parts missing, like some chicken, you know. So just keep that gorilla uh, glue and the the duct tape going there, <laughs> Jay. We got to get well, another episode out of you. 
that's that's the Fargo fix. If if you can't fix it, fix it with barbed wire and duct tape, you can't fix it. You know. So. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to the Neuro Noodle Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters: Outrageous Baking, Tor Talk, EEG, and Me. Mara, Sadia M, and Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. Outrageous Baking. You can find them at outrageousbaking.com. Tor Talk wants more people to discover text-to-speech because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. And Jonathan N, sorry, Joshua M over at Alternative Behavioral Therapy. They're in Vancouver, Washington. Big fans, Joshua. Thank you for the support. You can find them at neurofeedbackcare.com. Hey, do you have an idea for a topic? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail and link in the, in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can buy us a coffee on Patreon slash neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. You know, them, you, one, yes, Jay. One of, one of these shows will have to show some outtakes from from the yeah. documentary because there's some hilarious outtakes uh, that, that that weren't really quite appropriate for the documentary itself, but we can embarrass somebody with it later. You know, I I, I can't believe anything you say, Jay, is inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> cue, cue the cue the music